0: Hi right guys, welcome to another BASE Training Podcast. Um, Today we have a a guest on, Miss Amanda Henwood. Um, She is, uh, well, I'll let her talk about herself in a second and introduce herself. But firstly, remember you can go to our social media and uh, website for more information. And we'll just quickly reintroduce ourselves as we always do, so I'm Lee. Um, You can find me at UK on Instagram um, and same on Facebook and LinkedIn. And you can also email me at Lee at base.training if you want some more information. Um, Will, where can everyone find you?
1: Uh, so they can find me on Instagram, coach underscore Will underscore Stratty. find me on LinkedIn, Will Strafty, And they can email me, Will at base.training. Stefan,
0: how about yourself?
2: Yeah, Stefan, you can find me on Instagram, coach underscore Stefan underscore window. Mm-hmm. Find me on Facebook, Stefan Winder Strength and Movement Coach, uh, LinkedIn, Stefan Winder MSC, or you can email Stefan at base.training. Excellent.
0: And if you want any more information about base training, you can head to our website, www.base.training. So, Amanda, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from, what you do? Yeah, okay, hello. (laughs)
3: So yeah, my name's Amanda, as you've already said. Um, Thank you very much for inviting me on the podcast. Um, So I'm currently studying for a PhD in psychology and behavioural science at the London School of Economics. Um, My research focuses on better understanding the role of emotion in driving cognitive and behaviour change. And it's being supervised by Professor Paul Dolan, who is a world-renowned expert in happiness. Um, He's also author of Happiness by Design, which you might have heard. And I've recently been lucky enough to work with, on his latest book, Happy Ever After, which looks at how the stories we tell about how we ought to be living our lives sometimes make us miserable. That
0: was pretty concise. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> all right so what we're, going to be talking about today, what we're going to be talking about today is well-being and happiness and uh, just in general uh, mostly Amanda's general thoughts on it and how it applies to health and fitness in, and life in general um, so how do we how do we define happiness or how do you does the psychology word define happiness
3: yeah so there's um there's quite a bit of debate around the actual definition of happiness, and there's been a lot of work at the moment trying to kind of make it a more robust measurement, um, because as you can imagine, it's a subjective state, so it's a very hard thing to measure in a way that's going to be consistent across people. Um, that being said, there's been quite a lot of development in the field over the last couple of years, um, or a few decades even, and. We've kind of arrived at two different distinctions or ways of measuring happiness. So the first of these is measuring people's experiences of happiness. So that's how people feel in the moment as they're going about their daily lives. So, for example, um, how you might feel as you are biting into a McDonald's cheeseburger or as you are watching your friend perform in a play. So it's kind of that moment to moment feeling of either joy, misery um, or anything else in between. So that's one way of measuring happiness the other way is through people's overall more global evaluations of how they feel about their lives um, so for example you might ask overall how are you feeling about your life overall or overall how happy do you feel in your life overall and to that you normally get a response on a scale of zero to ten and um, which gives you an indication of how someone feels their life is going kind of at a, more, at a more global level, um, so you kind of got two different measurements there. One more evaluation, and the other in the experience. Um, and there's kind of a bit of debate as to which one we should be prioritising.
0: Well, Yeah. Again, very concise. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's always important to start with a definition of what we're talking about, and uh, happiness is something that people are seem to be striving for constantly. This that more so now, it's seems more prevalent now, happiness is a massive uh, topic, especially around the rise in uh, prominence of depression and suicide rates as well. Um, when it comes to well-being, how would you define that?
3: So well-being, I mean, when you talked about happiness, I'm also thinking about well-being. I suppose that's more of a scientific term that we use to encompass general states of feeling happy and also feeling less happy. Um, mm-hmm. So well-being, I suppose, is something that captures a bit more than just happiness, but also um, the misery side of happiness too. Um, and yeah, it's generally just described as people's emotional states as they go about their daily life. <laughs> However, as, as I mentioned, some people do measure it as a global evaluation of how you're feeling overall. Um, so I know that Paul, my supervisor, certainly argued that we should be focusing on experiences of happiness over evaluations. And the reason behind that is that when we are thinking about how our lives are going overall, we're often relying on kind of key things like have we got a good job? Are we in a relationship? Um, Are we living our lives according to how society defines happiness? Um, And that's often kind of what you'll do if you are asked to answer a question in a short space of time that requires you to kind of sum up all the happiness in your life and give it a number from zero to 10. That's what we do, we kind of use shortcuts. So a lot of people will rely on those key factors that society define as things that should make us happy in order to answer that question. So, I mean, the argument for focusing on experiences of happiness over evaluations is that actually you might have a brilliant job in evaluation. Let's say you're a lawyer at a top law firm, But when you look at that person's day to day experiences working in that role, they might actually not be as happy as the prestige and kind of associations we have with that role might suggest. So, for example, they are very stressed. We know that lawyers typically report pretty low on happiness despite having a job with high social prestige.
0: So is society having a huge effect on the general happiness of society? (laughs) Yeah.
3: Yeah. Um, So I think, well, certainly one of the big, big things that shifted or potentially shifted, we don't know, the evidence is not is not clear on this. But one of the big things that have come into play in the last kind of decade is social media, which has definitely found a way to amplify these kind of social narratives of what people believe should make them happy. And I think we see it all around us all the time. When we look at our news feeds, you've got images of people. You know, getting married, having kids, uh, maybe going on really nice holidays and so I think what that does is it means that we are comparing ourselves continually to society's standards of what happiness is and there's just a general broader question around whether that is actually any good for us um, and you can probably tell by my tone that I might be a bit skeptical <laughs> about which direction that's going. Um, Because we know, for example, social comparisons, the way we compare ourselves to people that are close to us um, and that we identify with is one of the strongest determinants of how happy we feel. So I think that social media plays a role in kind of, I suppose, creating a bit of an illusion in terms of how happy everyone else is around you. And then if you're comparing yourself to that on a daily basis, uh, there's the potential for that to be quite damaging.
0: Yeah, I've certainly seen with the clients I work with, uh, social media is having a, a huge impact, um, especially when it comes to when we're talking about a specific subject like nutrition, they will reference people they're following on social media. And uh, when it comes to building a relationship with a client, that can be quite tough when the information that is out there is um, not favorable or just plain wrong. <laughs> from that it's not research-based and it's just hearsay a long time um yeah the illusion of happiness is what a, uh, an interesting point that you brought up have you seen like any um evidence of how that's negatively affecting people like especially when it comes to behavior
3: uh actually there's not been much on on behavior in terms of the impact of social media on behavior as far as i'm aware but there has been a lot of research on the impact of social on social media um for happiness. And the thing is at the moment you it's it's mostly correlational research. So it's basically saying that social media is associated with people that feel on average less or more happy. Um, and the evidence is a little bit mixed. So because these relationships might be there anyway, we don't know without manipulating something experimentally whether it's actually the social media causing the misery or happiness or vice versa. So there really needs to be some more experimental studies on this. Um, and I will be doing that as part of my PhD at some point It's to kind of explore, okay, if we expose people to certain content on social media, how does that affect their behavior afterwards? Um, and then manipulate the different types of content we expose people to. Because, I, I mean, it's not to say that social media is completely harmful. I think there's a lot of things it's very good for, for building inspiration, um, for connecting with other people. It can be a useful tool it's just kind of being alert to the different ways in which it might not always be making you as happy as you think it is given the amount of time we spend on it
0: guys did you have any points you wanted to jump in on any questions you had so far
1: it um, it might veer us on to a big detour but i'm going to run with it anyway so you mentioned uh you used the example of a lawyer um, and how stressed they are and how their stress affects their state of happiness. Uh, have you kind of experienced that with uh, different job roles that are under high stress? Um, and is there any cases where people do experience high stress and can still remain happy?
3: Yeah, so uh, it's a really good question. I think there has been the evidence that I'm referring to here is kind of a ranking of lots of different jobs and how happy people say they are overall. So again, it's it's correlational, not causal. Um, so it might be that very miserable people go into law. <laughs> um, but we do see that there is a pattern. So jobs that tend to be associated with kind of high social prestige, but might be quite stressful day to day. So like law- um, lawyers, bankers, um, people in medical school, you see those kind of as ranked as the most miserable. But then when you look at who is in the more happiness ranking jobs you do find jobs that that kind of make sense because they have a social aspect to them so for example hairdressing um, and floristry where people have day-to-day contact with people they might be engaging in more kind of autonomous conversations they're not staying extreme you know they're not putting in lots and lots of hours um against their will um actually personal training is comes up quite high on happiness because again you get that kind of Person-to-person feedback, um, you can see the impact of your work directly, and yeah, all of these things we know are good for happiness. So yeah, there does seem to be a distinction. As for people that might be highly stressed and still happy, um, I think that really gets at the difference in in happiness measurement that I talked about earlier. So probably they would evaluate their lives as being quite happy overall because they've got this amazing job. Maybe they're getting a lot of money. Um, but I think if they are experiencing stress on a day-to-day basis in the moment consistently I would argue that's a much more important kind of determine that's going to be affecting not only how they feel day-to-day but also their physiology which we know has a big impact on health so those people are probably you know more likely to run into health problems or complications as they get older as a result of that excess stress. Yeah
1: yeah so the, like Typically, people who are high stress and would probably claim they're happy will either be lying to themselves as a cover up for how stressed they are and how miserable they actually are.
3: Yeah. And I think there's there's also a big a big social narrative in the fact that, you know, we should work lots and lots of hours. You should strive, you know, go above and beyond in order to get these successful positions, because that's what really matters when in doing so, we often neglect the experiences we're having. All the while to get to that point and then even when we get to that point it's not clear that that will be unequivocally good for our happiness
0: thank you for answering that question <laughs> that summed it up very well
2: <laughs> Stefan did you have anything? I did yeah Um so we're talking about social comparisons on social media and that this often negatively impacts people on, by, on their happiness because they're seeing all these happy couples or like getting married or they're on holiday got all these like uh, these good vibes going on um can it work in the opposite aspect so by posting on social media and getting likes and having people comment do you feel that that does actually boost happiness or is it like a temporary feedback where it's just like oh i feel good right now but in the long run their happiness actually still decreases or just stays the same it stagnates?
3: Yeah so again a really really good question I think that it's there isn't much research on that um but my instinct would be that what you get from the instant likes um and shares of your content is kind of this initial dopamine hit so the feeling that things are going well you kind of get an instant happiness hit from that um but I can't imagine that that is a particularly lasting hit um we, we do have some evidence showing that people with kind of lots of friends on Facebook for example um and not necessarily happier than people with less friends on Facebook um in terms of likes I think there's definitely going to be some personality differences in the people that that is really negative for because potentially they are basing their kind of self-worth and using those images to validate how they feel about themselves so if they get a lot of likes one day that might be great but if they fail to replicate that on another day that could have some quite detrimental impact into kind of how they're feeling about themselves which is um yeah pretty damaging in the long run I think but still to be tested so we can't we can't be conclusive about that.
0: One of the things that we deal with as as coaches is trying to get people to reduce their light exposure in the evening and a lot of the time that is by putting their phone down and uh like leaving it out of the room. One of the things that we've definitely found it's hard to do is to get them to do that. You mentioned about happiness and dopamine and things like that. (laughs) Controversial question, is that programmed into the the whole building of the social media applications in terms of how to make people more addicted to it? And then I suppose the second part of that question would be, what behavior changing strategies would you suggest to help with someone that's uh, struggling with that
3: yeah so i mean we know that instagram facebook companies like this have paid a lot of money they've invested a lot of their time and effort into finding behavioral scientists and psychologists to inform the design of their products so yes they definitely definitely have designed their products in ways that will get us hooked Um, And most of that is about creating this dopamine cycle. So you go online and you get a hit from these likes and things like that that you're experiencing when you have that moment online. And then that creates a needing or a wanting cycle in your brain to experience that same hit of dopamine again. And the thing is with that is that over time, you kind of you'll get to a point where you consistently need it and need it and need it and you'll be getting less and less in return. Um, that's, I mean, that's a classic cycle of addiction. Um, there is a lot of debate online about whether or not social media can be classified as a type of addiction. Certainly, people there are people that are addicted to it, but whether the day-to-day use of it and the amount we use it in general as society classifies as addiction. Um, yeah, I think I think certainly it's verging on that.
0: Does, is, is that having an... Well, I suppose it would then have a, a negative impact on someone's or impact sorry on someone's happiness in the long run.
3: Yeah, if you're if you're starting to use something and you're getting like a decline in the happiness you get back from it, then over time eventually you will reach a point where that piece of technology or whatever it is 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 no longer actually giving you the initial satisfaction it did when you first started using it, but by that point you're hooked already so you're kind of engaged in this cycle where you keep on using it despite not having much return in terms of your happiness um which yeah is obviously a bit of a waste of time and everything else so I mean I think we we're all guilty of probably overusing social media a little bit um I suppose when you cross into the line of whether it's an addiction you need to be I mean it needs to be seriously disrupting your everyday life to be classified as an addiction so I think it's kind of not quite there yet but certainly it's got properties that are reflective of that kind of addiction loop.
0: Um,
3: And then you asked another question about behavior change and how to get people to actually put their phone away for example and yeah this is really tricky and I think a lot of the evidence on sleep suggests that that is something that people should be doing Um, but yeah it's very hard and we actually we did some interviews with young people Um, I work for a a company as a consultant doing some work on building technologies for people to improve their well-being. And one of these technologies was an app to reduce or to help people with their sleep. Um, So we did quite a lot of interviews with young people because that was the target market for that app. And we found that pretty much every young person at the moment is actually going to sleep, scrolling through their social media, YouTube, Instagram. That's how they go to sleep. That's kind of a method that they've used to help them sleep, which is ironic, given that we know, you know, the evidence about blue light and how harmful that is for actually allowing you to get a good night's sleep. So how can you actually get people to leave their phone outside? I don't know, lock lock the phone up in a box. And put it, I mean, there's literally, I don't know, I think you can get them to do things like make a pre-commitment um, or maybe assign the task to somebody close to them so it's not under their control but it's under control of someone they've assigned the responsibility to yeah yeah.
1: um
3: i think yeah i think that's probably the most effective way in that context because you need a lot of willpower otherwise um or just make it really hard to access the phone you can get you can get for example apps that shut down the content in your phone after a certain time um so if that's kind of an effort or an extra step, you have to unlock that feature in order to then access your phone, then you might think twice about going to get it at night time.
0: Yeah, I know with the the new software on Apple, you can um, set time limits can't kind you, of, to the phone, or to certain apps on like social media and stuff like that. That's definitely helped me. Uh, I <laughs> think like 15 minutes on Facebook and then it shuts down. Like, no. Oh, nice. No,
3: yeah, there are very cool apps out there that do do target some of that.
0: Yeah. Excellent. So behaviour change then, in just in what are your general thoughts on that and uh, approaches to it? or What does the research suggest about it?
3: Yeah, so I think in terms of health and fitness, um, one of the key things, if you want people to stick at behaviour or maintain behaviour change, is to actually, yeah, I mean, it is to create this dopamine cycle in a sense. So you want people to feel good Whilst they're exercising, basically, and there's been some recent evidence that suggests it's not feeling good after the exercise that predicts people coming back and doing that exercise again. It's actually the feeling good during. And I think this is quite a key distinction because a lot of fitness programs out there are focused on getting people in and doing you know, very high intensity, high stress exercise that might make people feel pretty awful in the moment. And then they get the kind of dopamine hit after the exercise is finished because they feel good about having done that. Um, but that's not necessarily what's going to get them to keep on coming back. Actually, it's it's much more likely that they'll come back to the exercise and return to it if they were enjoying it in the moment as they're doing the exercise rather than getting that hit afterwards, um, which is pretty key, I think. And yeah, there's also quite a lot in Thinking about people's expectations of change so I think we have this in in seeing how people respond to therapy but it's also consistent in how people respond to fitness plans so basically if you come into a plan with an idea of how you're going to change and that idea of how you're going to change is very very far away from what you are currently then you're going to have problems maintaining motivation um, and sticking at that goal because each time you engage in the activity, I suppose you're, you're then confronted with the fact that actually where you want to be is very, very far away from where you are now. Um, so I think that fitness experts can kind of help people or help their clients in bringing those goals a little bit further back, reining them in a little bit towards where, where they are now and making some realistic and kind of more, those goals that people can see themselves enacting in the near future rather than the very, very distant future. Um, and it's not to say they can't ever achieve those big goals where there is a big gap. But I think it's very important that you break it down into very small, even weekly kind of bite sized chunks and get them to focus their attention on the bite sized chunks for that week, rather than focusing their attention consistently on this end goal that's very, very distant, very far away from what they are now.
0: That's a conversation that we often have. Is when people come in, I want to lose X amount of weight in a couple of weeks, and we say, "Well, this might actually take you four or five years um, to make it sustainable as well. Um, you can you can lose that weight in six weeks, yes, by going on a crash diet. But a lot of the time, they will rebound and end up putting on more white weight. It's the old fad diet cycle. Um, we talked a little bit just before we started uh, this podcast about the psychology behind those uh, diet cycles. Um, Could you talk about that a little bit?
3: The psychology behind the crash diets, you mean? Behind fad
0: fad dieting?
3: Yeah, so I mean, people want short-term gratification. Um, We, as humans, have a desire to prioritise and tend to prioritise short-term gains over long-term gains. So I think the attractiveness of starting a fad diet or engaging in something where you're going to see an immediate result is very high and it's hard for us to resist that. Um, I suppose the question then for you is how you how you change people's mind about that, which is it's, it is a huge challenge because as I say we've got this innate tendency to prefer a short term effect. Um, and the only way I can think of doing that is, as I've said, to really, really break their fitness goals down into very very kind of short-term gains so you're not giving up smoking to be healthier overall but you're giving up smoking so that your breath doesn't smell today for example Um, it's kind of really really taking it back to what's the immediate benefit that actually does still feed into that long-term goal and i think you will then see that some of these kind of fitness programs that are out there fail to provide the end goal in addition to the immediate benefit whereas i think the key thing would be to have those two things feed into each other as time goes on
0: yeah, yeah. what, what are you, i suppose what are your thoughts then on the but like the, the general approach to the fitness industry from your perspective but i suppose both from a psychological and uh, just a personal perspective on what's out there at the moment and what you consume because i know we, we've talked uh, sometimes a little bit about it and <laughs> our approach and it's the polar opposite to what's out there, uh, in the fitness industry. Uh, yeah. So what, what are your general thoughts on it?
3: Yeah. So from, from a personal perspective, I suppose, um, I've always done kind of quite high intensity exercise since I was quite young. Um, so I've never really struggled or experienced great stress from that. Um, but at the same time, I think it is important for me personally to mix it up with lots of different stuff. So I tend to do a mixture of high intensity exercise with weight training. Um, and I kind of create my own program and it's based on how I feel that day and what I feel like getting up and going to do. Um, boxing is kind of one of the things that I do do quite a lot. And that is, I think reflecting on it, especially given all of the literature I've discussed, probably because I feel good in the moment. Um, doing it so so yeah I think from a personal perspective it's about variety and making sure that what I'm doing is something I actually feel like doing that day from a more kind of broad psychological perspective I think I mean the evidence suggests that keeping a kind of steady flow of happiness is much better for us than having extreme variation and I would say that that probably fits into fitness as well in the sense that If you're having like extreme highs and lows of fitness, so going into a class that you absolutely hated, but afterwards feel really good for doing it. um, Potentially, that's not going to have the best effect on your long term well-being and happiness, um, because, yeah, we just know that variability is bad for us. It impacts our sleep patterns that evening. Um, It impacts, for example, if you're if you have a very, very high of feeling feeling very good about something then you're likely to also come down and then start to feel bad about something different. So there's kind of a desire in our body or a mechanism that tries to balance emotions. And what that means is if we have extreme high emotions, our body will then try to compensate that with an extreme low emotion. I mean, that's, that's the theory anyway behind that. Um, so yeah, I think fitness overall could do with kind of (laughs) taking some of that research into consideration, especially given that how people feel during exercise is a strong predictor of whether they'll come back.
0: I'm going to move that back onto addiction. Like, right? is that extreme high and low? Uh, I suppose representative of an addictive, not uh, personality or or, a, a, or what addiction looks like. Does that make sense?
3: Yeah, it does make sense, and. Yeah, I think it does play into the addiction cycle because you have an extreme liking for something and then that goes and then you have an extreme craving for something. Um, And that's kind of like a a vicious cycle that people can enter. I don't know to what extent. I mean, a lot of people would consider being addicted to exercise as a good thing. Um, I would probably disagree. I think addiction is defined as harmful and interrupting into your kind of everyday life. And certainly if you are having these extreme low moments during your fitness journey or whatever else, then I think there is probably reason to intervene and maybe kind of balance out the fitness program slightly.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, that's
1: kind of, it's kind of um, um like we We've people into habits as we like to talk about them and uh, these people that are doing highly stressful activity because they feel good afterwards. And regardless of how that makes uh, the toll it's taken on their body, they will go back and do that every single day of the week because they need to feel that same way every day. Um, But you obviously said that uh, the research suggests that feeling good in the moment will ultimately be better in terms of their happiness. So how do you get someone to kind of come from this highly stressful activity, feeling good afterwards, into feeling good in the moment? What kind of changes could they make to... Uh, to to do activity that
3: way yeah so I think that you can probably well you'd have to judge it on a case by case but basis and think about what that person what that person does enjoy about fitness and probably have that conversation with them and maybe try out a few different things because also people are not always the best um, at telling you what's good for them (laughs) so sometimes it's actually necessary to try a few things out Um, But there has, I mean, there's been some quite interesting research recently on matching kind of fitness programs to personality types. So you might want to consider whether the person you're coaching is an extrovert who might enjoy kind of a more or less structured type of fitness program where they can interact with people freely during the exercise. Um, Or are they introverted where they might actually prefer to have a more kind of Class based program where they still have the interaction with others, but there is kind of a more structured approach to that interaction that gives them kind of a bit of, you know, they don't have to put themselves out there in that context. So I think it's really thinking about what for that individual person makes sense in terms of them feeling good in the moment. Um, And it might be as simple as kind of listening to a podcast that you enjoy at the same time as exercising or, you know, kind of bundling habits that. The person associates with feeling good, um, with fitness, which they might not naturally associate with feeling good. Not everybody does. Um, so it's really thinking about who you're working with and what their personal preferences are.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We kind of deal with getting them to not be highly stressed during it. We want them to feel good during it, because see that ultimately that will be better physiologically and psychologically. So, Individualization is the way is what you're trying to say.
3: I think so, yeah. I think personalization and potentially also a little bit of a uh, distraction during <laughs> so for example, like the podcast idea is that you're also think of something else whilst you're doing something that you might have a more negative connotation with. Um, I know that for example, one of my fitness instructors used to have us holding uh, I don't know what you call it, where your your legs are up in the air and you're kind of trying to train your stomach on the floor she used to have us throw a ball to each other whilst doing that exercise. So we're kind of our mind has taken off the stress of the exercise, um, but we're still getting the physical benefits from, from doing it. So I don't know if there's some way you can kind of trick the people that are finding it stressful into finding it a better experience that could be useful.
0: Mm. I suppose it would be a good idea to have a conversation around why they're finding it stressful in the first place. Um, I know that from running a high intensity model for quite a long time uh, for realizing the, the destructive nature of it for people, that people would be extremely apprehensive around entering into high intensity exercise, um, both from the, the social pressure behind it and just from the level of physical exertion they would need to to express intense work. Um, that, that created a lot of anxiety and, Push them away from being a member full time. Um, and I know we've had, when we changed our approach to exercise and to move towards a more lower level of intensity, a um, more individualized level of intensity, we found we're getting people coming away from that high intensity model and uh, high I suppose, dopamine drive back to us because they're now finding it more anxiety producing and we're having to rehab them off it and i'm I'm now treating a lot of my client a lot of clients that i've seen especially the first stages as if they are in rehab Um, it's really low level doses of uh, intensity but measured to them so if they've come from a really really high level of intensity and they are able to express it um, physiologically and psychologically only lowering them down slowly as opposed to going complete polar opposite would you say that that's a good approach to reducing someone's uh, level of anxiety and the stress they feel around it and moving them to more of a balanced model
3: yeah so one of the key things you would do to reduce someone's anxiety normally um is exposure to the thing that makes them anxious. But in this case, that's kind of paradoxical because the thing that makes them anxious is actually making them, I mean, you know, it's not something they can get over it or make them less anxious. It's actually detrimental to them. Um, In which case, yeah, I suppose you would want to try and, I'm assuming these clients still feel as if they are somehow wanting to reenact that model. Mm -hmm. um, And they come to you kind of not sure how to act. So. Yeah, in that case, I think bringing things down very slowly, gradually would be, yeah, would be the right, would be the right approach. Um, Just trying to think if there might be some other things you could do in addition. Um, I suppose the thing you're trying to counter is the fact they still have a drive for this high intensity exercise. So you need to find out where that drive's coming from. And potentially it's, you know, they feel that that kind of exercise is going to get them more quickly onto their end goal or end state that they want to be at. And so I suppose it's there's some important psychological work of relinking what you're doing now currently to their end goal and kind of changing that association from what what they were doing to what you're doing with them currently and making sure that they are switching their focus or kind of reframing the goal in terms of the new exercise routine rather than the old one. Um, which I think you can logically <laughs> prove from what you've said is is flawed.
0: Yeah. So it, it sounds like you're, t- you're um, saying that like, relationships with a uh, like, subject matter expert, in quote marks, is useful or to have someone to talk to about these uh, topics.
3: Yeah, definitely. And I think a relationship with somebody during... A fitness challenge, or you know, working towards a fitness goal, is incredibly helpful, even in just getting you to maintain the level of kind of motivation towards that goal that you want to maintain. And I think we know. I mean, in in therapeutic context, being having a good relationship with your therapist is one of the strongest predictors that you'll get better after therapy. Um, and I imagine the same thing carries through to a fitness type relationship, which in many ways, like you say, can obviously turn into quite a therapeutic um, relationship at the same time. So it's almost like they're getting a double benefit, I suppose. On the one hand, you're helping them adhere to their fitness plan. There's kind of a social commitment that they've made to you that will make them much more likely to keep turning up week after week. Um, But in addition to that, there's kind of a psychological or emotional social support benefit from having you there during that journey, particularly given the amount of kind of expertise and work you put into understanding that relationship
0: awesome so we are quite over time now um so if we had to sum it up what would be your um, like three tips to happiness what what can people are small things that people can do each day to increase their level of happiness
3: (laughs) well i'm gonna i'm gonna try and link it to fitness because i think one of the key things we know makes everyone happy is being outdoors in nature this is quite a effect on people's happiness so i think if you can even sometimes bring exercise outdoors this is going to be beneficial to your clients um, i think generally trying to aim for this steady happiness um, is is going to be beneficial for people so if they're having extreme highs and lows then try to find ways to i suppose alleviate those and make their life more of a smooth consistent feeling of happiness um and finally, yeah, building social support. So that can be done either in the relationship you have with your trainer, making sure you make time for friends and family at home. Um yeah, just just having a close social support network, not necessarily a big one, but a a good one.
0: Any points you want to add, guys? No. What um, so right. was that? It's very eloquent. eloquent.
3: <laughs> Thank you very much. It's funny, <laughs> seeing you three on screen, it's like the progression of the beard. I've got it's so. <laughs> <stuck here. laughs>
0: it it really <laughs> Excellent. Um, they are chasing mine. I've even got my comb here. Comb <laughs> um, yeah, so there we have it. That's how you become happy. <laughs> Just that. Just do that, and you'll be fine. Get so Amanda, thank you for coming on. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Hopefully this has been helpful to those listening. Um, again, if you want to, actually, where can where can everyone find more about your research and more about you? Yeah. Uh,
3: so you can find more about my research on the LSE webpage. If you just search Amanda Hinwood, um, you can find more there. I also have a Twitter, which I should know off by heart. I think it's a henwood one. Yeah, a henwood one is my Twitter handle.
0: Good stuff. And uh, it would be great to have you back on um, to talk a bit more about these uh, points in depth. Actually, I think for yep. me, addiction is quite a, a, a round exercise, especially is is a topic that's probably not discussed that much. Um, so yeah, we'll leave it there and as always if you want to find out more you can head back to the start of this podcast and find out where we are and listen to it again as well and um, leave us a five star review on apple Podcasts. that'd be really greatly appreciated and uh, we'll speak to you next time um so peace out
3: bye